Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. Thea is back from her suspicious absence <laughs> and has blessed Lucy's baked gnocchi dish of last week. Yep. You said it was acceptable to bake yep. gnocchi? Yep, I did say I have some caveats. What are the caveats? If a gnocchi were going to be baked, I yes. would prefer it to not be potato, yeah, yeah. to be not, not potato because that too often goes tough unless in, in a real expert hand. So I would prefer it to be like a pumpkin, oh. pumpkin kind of something with a, with moist moisture to it. Okay. Or indeed spinach and ricotta, that's perfect with butter and sage. And would you like to hear my gnocchi recipe? Not really. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good. <laughs> Lucy's here, so you can do it. Would you like to hear it, Lucy? Sorry. Yes, if you listen to my caveat about gnocchi in a minute. Yes, I would like to hear your recipe, please. So all it is, is it's garlic, mushrooms and parma ham, and then you put gnocchi in... And cream, take it off the heat, put some rocket in, and then you eat it. But what do you do to the garlic and mushrooms you and parmesan? fry it. And then you fry the gnocchi? Yeah. Mm, that sounds all right. And cream and not... Thea, your lips are pursed. <laughs> she looks very disapproved. Yeah. It sounds a bit confused oh, to me. Well, Can I just say that my gnocchi is not baked, it's roasted. That's the same thing. It's not the same thing. What's the difference between roasting and baking? Whoever knew we felt we had so many caveats about gnocchi. We're so we, divided we, on the We need to move on. We need to move on. Do we? <laughs> I want to confront baking and roasting. We'll do that later on. <laughs> Last week, we asked you to tweet at the TLS with your locations while listening to this podcast. We're looking for the exotic or the mundane. Do keep them coming. I've got three more. Edward Rich never misses a show while in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Labrador. Does that mean that if he's not in that specific place, he does miss the show? I think he's always in that place and he never misses the show. <laughs> and I thought it was made up, but it's in Canada. And when I looked it up yesterday, minus 16 degrees there. Oof. Exactly. Caroline Griego <laughs> listens while doing the laundry in Chicago, which is nicely mundane. And Nogatana Polsky is listening from Abu Tor in Jerusalem. Do send us more for next week. And if you're listening to this podcast and thinking, I'd like to subscribe to the magazine, this is a very good week to do it. Google TLS subscriptions and you can get a Black Friday offer that is very good. And yes, I do acknowledge the concept of Black Friday is awful. This week, it's Books of the Year and the studio is full of TLS folk to give recommendations of what is hot and if we have the time, what is not. Plus, David Horsepool interviews the winner of the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, Sir High Plokey, who took the award this year for his book, Chernobyl, History of a Tragedy.
Every year, we, and by we, I mean history editor David Horsepool, who moans a lot about doing it, ask TLS contributors to nominate their books of the year. What results tend to be an odd mix of big books and a big mix of odd books? Is it a licence to recommend trusty favourites or to show off one's learned and esoteric tastes? Who can say? The most nominated novel this year is Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday, extracted in the TLS, I'm pleased to say. The least nominated book is my own, which despite coming out in 2018 was not mentioned at all. The brilliant translator and poet Michael Hoffman, though, was mentioned four times this year. He gave his own recommendations, was praised for his translation of Berlin Alexanderplatz, and twice for his poetry collection One Lark, One Horse. Well done to him. But to help me pick through the rest of the list is... History editor, father of the list, David Horsepool. <laughs> Hello. Do you moan about it? Never. I've never been known to say anything but... Goody, we goody, a, we, it's time for we Books We have a room of, of TLS people. Does David Horsepool moan about doing this list? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Minister of Fun, Ros Deneen here. Indie pop star, Lucy Dallas. Hello. Yes, David does moan, yes. <laughs> That's <laughs> the question. Yeah. Sorry. A bit. Critical yeah. thing. Right. We have a plan for this. There's a lot of us. We're going to pick our favourite choices. We're going to think about any particular gushing reviews of any books in the paper this year. Then we'll have a break for David interviewing the Bailey Gifford winner and telling us how to pronounce the name properly. And then we'll finish with our own recommendations and even following Anna-Katerina Schaffner this year, nominating any unbooks, books we despise. Don't look like that, Lucy. I did send you an email so you could be fully prepared for this <laughs> podcast. Oh, I think my email's been playing up. So yeah, I don't think I got that one. Right, David, this is your list. Favourite choice? What was your preferred my favorite, selector? Um, well, the preferred selection, I think, rather than selector, I think a couple of people chose Julia Jackson's biography of Charles de Gaulle. Yes. Our very own Tim Crane, who is our philosophy editor, but clearly has time to read enormous books about... French presidents and Frederick Raphael as well chose it and also took the um, opportunity to point out an error in it, um, <laughs> which is very nice. But it's obviously a uh, tremendous. He pointed out that I think he got the wrong was it the wrong Amos in his um, oh, yes. description of something I can't now remember what it was. Oh yes, not many laughs, but an inadvertent one when the general is said to be reading Comrade's Lucky Jim. Yes, so he's obviously not reading Comrade's Lucky Jim. No. So he's confusing his Joseph Conrad and his King's Amos there. Easily done. Lords and luckies. Have you read the book? I have not read the book, and so I look forward to doing Are so. Are you going to read it seriously? Yeah, I think I will, because I don't know anything about Charles de Gaulle. Well, beyond what everybody knows about Charles de Gaulle. His remarks about cheeses and so on, and his not liking the Brits very much. What was his remark about cheeses? That Just to keep the food theme going. <laughs> and that France is a very difficult country to govern, because any country with as many different regional cheeses as France has. Mm. But, um, Britain has more exactly. exactly. Well, well, and yes. look at the state that we're in. Yes. <laughs> if we have to point at one <laughs> problem with Britain I don't know right whether, now... I don't know whether that would have been true at the time, though. Probably does now. Probably not. Then. Oh, do you think it's the rise of artisanal cheeses? Oh, yeah. I think that is possibly about the mess uh, we're accounts in. of the state we're in, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about it that no. way. But anyway, I'm hoping to get beyond le fromage when I read Julian Jackson's book. It's a funny guy, because Charles de Gaulle is, you hear about him, but I don't think at any point in my education has anyone really ever dis described what his life. You know about bits to do with the Second World War, and that's really it. You yeah. ever, in, in British education, do you come across them very much? No, you don't very much. And we reviewed a book this year, the last book by John Julius Norwich, a sort of brief history of France. And he begins that book talking about meeting de Gaulle when he was a young man, 
and he arrived late for lunch and there was no food left and the general had left some food on his plate and offered it to John Julius Norwich but apologised that he'd already tipped uh, his fagash into it. <laughs> but apparently John Julius Norwich said that he'd be honoured to eat the uh, cendrier of the, of the, of the general. Yeah. Did, <laughs> yeah. Did he eat it? He like, finished uh, up his he chips he was, with the ash? Yeah, yeah. I believe so. I, would, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> Well, it obviously did him no harm. He lived to his 90s. If someone said to me, eat my leftovers, no. I've put ash in it, you'd no, say, no, I don't. Even if it was Nelson Mandela, well, you'd go, thank even... you very much. <laughs> I mean, and then maybe pretend but, to eat Yeah, it. you might pretend, Well, yeah. that's a different thing. I don't think Nelson Mandela today. would offer you his old I, leavings that he put in his It doesn't seem like a Mandela. I don't think he smoked. I wouldn't do it to anyone living or dead. If someone just said to me, here's my ash-drenched leavings, will you eat them? I'd be like, no. Makes for a less dramatic story. I I think just on the side. Sprinkled. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, (laughs) anyone else for anyone anyone else that they recommend? I liked uh, Alex Alex Clark's recommendation. uh, Has actually. Oh, oh, See, both of you. Both no, of you. no, no. This Alex is going to be a very short you, Between podcast. you and David, you've taken so both of mine. Alex Clark said, everyone says that, don't they? <laughs> this year brought in my ancient Mariner novel, the book I'm destined to traipse around fervently pressing into people's hands. I, I love that. I think people do. I do that. That it hasn't scooped prizes all over the shop amazes and affronts me. It's Samantha Harvey's The Western Wind which takes us to a tiny Somerset village at the end of the 15th century. And Sarah Moss recommended it as well. That's right. Yeah. Did we review it? I'm not sure. I haven't... I mean, I, it did pass me by, and now I'm going to go and get Rectify it. Rectify the... Yeah. I was talking to Andrew Holger, who edits the book's pages of the Sunday Times, and he sent me their review, which said it was ponderous. Oh, mm. really? So there are... Because basically it's set in a confessional box, primarily, which I think might be an anachronism deliberately, and the priest hears the confessions of people and that helps him to, to solve the crimes. It's kind of a murder mystery, but it's filled with sort of philosophy of the early modern period. I thought the point of the, of the confessional box was that it had just been introduced. Uh, yes, I think. So yeah, everyone was a bit suspicious about that as well. So maybe not an yeah. That would make more sense, wouldn't it? But so I've bought it. It's winged. Have you? Well, yeah, I'm going to go. Can we all borrow your Exactly. Yeah, so sure it doesn't get thrown away. Yeah. <laughs> I've been, as you all know, I've been buying books for my wife for, for Christmas. And because they can't, we get so many books sent directly to me, they go on the books table and two of them were being thrown out. And David Horsepool, you found the third. Yes, I didn't admit to you that I had squirreled it away hoping to give it to a raffle uh, <laughs> before we I realised that you'd ordered it. What was it called? It the anatomy, called of, a anatomy of a scandal. Yeah, uh, it looked I, very good. It did look Just good, the sort of yeah. thing someone would want to win as a prize. Yeah, you very kindly but returned. Have we now not it's, given away now, your wife's yeah, present? She's 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 I feel that. I feel like. I feel like I have to rebuy them for you. I think it was probably me that threw them. No, all three of them returned. Right, keep focus, everyone. Other selections that intrigue you at all, Lucy Dallas. Well, who's holding? I mean, this is not a visual medium of the podcast. You're holding. I've got a delightful a, a microphone as if you're doing football commentary. I wish I, th- that's one of my other missed careers. I would love to have done football commentary. It feels like you should be in a sheepskin coat. I would be just so up for that, though uh, not f- not from any position of knowledge. No, but strong feelings. Well, that's, <laughs> that's, okay. that's what I would yeah, transmit. That's, that's all anyone commentary. else transmits. Exactly. Go on. Uh, well, I was going to say the Western Wind, obviously. No, first of all, I was going to say there's an excellent book called How Britain Really Works. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No one mentioned that. Could they even mention that as a show? Must but, oh, read. Yeah, but oh no, they choose not to. Go on. Apart from that. Apart from that. Well, I was going to read the the Western Wind. 
basically. I was interested. Sharon, you were going to be the Western Wind. Ros? I was. I was going to. Well. <laughs> <laughs> but that is based. I read her. I think it was her first novel, oh, uh, so you're, Wilderness. You're, so it was based on. It was based on my having enjoyed that. That was an account of the protagonist has Alzheimer's. Yeah, and he's a he's right. a was a, an architect, and he has this unrealized dream to build a glass house. And it, I thought that was really, really good. I really enjoyed that. So, so that you, was on the on the basis of that. I thought so that. from genuine knowledge, Lucy from ignorance. What reading it from ignorance? Yeah, picking it from ignorance. Well, I've only heard yes, but I've only heard good things about it. There's a couple of things I'd like to be able to read and can't. Go on. The person who's recommended the book about um, Pulcinella as one of the figures from the Commedia dell'arte. I'd yes. love to be able to read that. It's in Italian. Who recommended <laughs> that? So, who recommended it? Marina Warner okay. recommended it, and it's by... I don't want to do Italian in front of Theo. No. I don't have I don't have it. It's in by Giorgio me, so. Agamben. Agamben, yeah, yeah. Agamben, there you yeah. go. It's by Giorgio Agamben. And I wish I could read it. It's probably really good. It's in It'll Italian. There's probably someone some translating point. it right now. Yeah. Yes. There was there was a flurry of Agamben books recently, mm. so it may actually have been translated. Oh, there is another one I want to read, which Paul Muldoon and Tom Stoppard and myself, obviously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Three names you Titans. often hear together. <laughs> yeah. Collected letters of Flan O'Brien. Uh, that would be really good. We, fun, oh, which Kate I Webb think. reviewed for us. Yes, and rather fondly. Mm. Anyone for anything else? Lots of people chose Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. Yes. Which, which I stand by. Did you select it for extraction? I did it select it for extraction. And did it do well? Did, did it long listed for the booker? It wasn't, surprisingly. I think it was listed for something else. But it's just been sort of critically acclaimed and adored and still that was right at the beginning of the year yeah and here we are towards the end of the year and what three or four three people yeah three people people recommended what's so good about it it? what's so good about it so it's fit into three parts the first part is about this young editor in new york and she has this big affair with this amazing author called ezra blazer and everyone sort of knows now that's based on lisa's the author's affair with philip ross yeah so there's this, you know, great American writer and this young woman and the, their relationship. The second part is about an Iraqi American man who's detained at passport control at Heathrow. And the third part is the great writer's, the transcript of this great writer's Desert Island Discs. And I, I think Claire Loudon says in our books of the year, what Lisa Halliday does is sort of show that it doesn't really matter what you do so long as you do it really well. Because it sounds like one level quite a tricksy, exactly. slightly annoying postmodern it's, book. It's not. It's not. It's really beautiful to read. It's quite sort of shocking in its ways and it's it's got longevity. It's really... I'm sure the next thing she's going to do is going to be looked at really carefully. Would it have been said to be a difficult book? Because that's what everyone said about Milkman, wasn't mm. it? When it won, won the booker. Then there was a backlash against the backlash because... Mm-hmm books shouldn't be seen to be difficult or literary they should just be said to be good or bad yeah and you think people would be a bit no i don't think they would think it's a difficult book because it's written unlike milkman it's written in as i suppose quite a conventional sentence by sentence it's written very stylishly but it's conventional whereas milkman i suppose isn't written in that way although i don't think it is particularly experimental milkman no but it just felt like that was that was a sort of bandwagon comment wasn't it and then it annoyed people. Yeah. Before we have a break for David interviewing the Bailey Gifford winner, I thought we might say, you've all commissioned reviews. Can you think of a reviewer that's absolutely loved a book? What was the biggest gush that you've published this year, anyone? It's not so much gushing as just, I don't know, the books that in in my section, so social studies and cultural studies sort of area, vague though that is, the books that seem to bring the most vigorous response are ones that cover issues that are pertinent now, even though they might be historical. So the one I'm thinking of is Patricia Williams, that piece 
around the middle of the year, which we, Lucy and I, spoke to her about actually on the podcast, mm. about eugenics and um, right. forced sterilisation and those two books she went a long way with them if you, if you know what i mean there was historical it's based in the kind of the progressive era so 1890s to 1920s roughly speaking america and she showed how those things are still relevant so this was when when uh, women usually of working class background were arrested probed you know no charge they yeah. suspected them of gonorrhea or venereal disease of some description and they they were sterilized against their will obviously and then so Patricia Williams kind of inserted those into the, the, the well, traced their legacy to, to now, and she concluded her piece. Here she said, The Trials of Nina McCall, so the two books, it's Molly Ladd-Taylor's Fixing the Poor, Eugenic Sterilisation and Child Welfare in the 20th Century, and Scott Stern's The Trials of Nina McCall, Sex Surveillance and the Decades-Long Government Plan to Imprison Promiscuous Women. And so talking about the last one, she says, The Trials of Nina McCall also ends on a haunting note. Each of the laws that enabled the American plan, which is built around kind of social Darwinism, those laws passed at general federal behest in 1917, 1918 and 1919 remain on the books in some form to this day. None of them has ever been struck down by an appeals court. And there's a headline this week, I believe, that Ohio was considering the death penalty for women who have abortions. Mm. So pro-life people calling for the death penalty mm. so it seems so extraordinary and mm. i remember reading in maybe it was toby lichtig's piece this year about the handmaid's tale none of the laws that she talked about in her original book margaret atwood she invented mm. so none of the yeah, things no, she that, said that at the time she said she based yeah. it on there's always something 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 that has happened, happened somewhere in the world somewhere. someone yeah. has done all that and elaine showalter did yeah. stuff about 19 turn of the century america it's amazing the parallel mm. between turn of the century america mm. and now other good reviews, David? Uh, well, we have a pretty good year f- for history uh, history reviews. Uh, Mary Fulbrook's uh, review of Ian Kershaw's oh, book, yes. Roller Coaster Europe 1950. I think that was the biggest gush I've read in the TLS. It could have potentially been. Potentially ever. <laughs> yes. So Ian Kershaw was very well known for his huge biography of Hitler. Uh, he's written other books as well. He, in fact, started out life as a medievalist, but this is... Um, almost up to the present day, 1950 to 2017 Europe. Obviously, pretty fascinating period. And Mary Fulbrook called it a historical masterpiece. Which so what more would you want than that? So uh, it's sitting on my shelf waiting. So for you're going to try and read it after Charles Gaulle? Yeah, well, yeah, or at the same time. Got, you know, two and eyes. the Simon Sharma review, I seem to remember. There was a Simon Sharma review, but then I realised that was older than, than we thought. Oh, when was that? Yeah, it was last year. So I had another look, and um, two other reviews that sprung to my attention was um, Lucy Wooding on Dermot McCulloch who we interviewed on his life of Thomas Cromwell which she called the work of an internationally renowned historian at the top of his game so that's quite nice and um, just to prove I do occasionally commission men there was uh, also Richard Aldrich on Christopher Andrews The Secret World which, Which is, is very a, good. A, yeah, it's a sort of world history of secret intelligence. I've started reading. It's and it is a tremendous good. book. I have dipped into that one. And uh, Richard Aldrich called it a stunning <coughs> secret archaeology of a subject he himself helped create. Which is I, pretty good. I had to interview Simon Sharma at Hay Festival and I was able to quote the review at him. It was, which is useful because if it had been this book's a boring load of rubbish it would have been hugely <laughs> awkward I've got the opposite task next year oh uh, what's that we well we have 
Can uh, we, we haven't loved every <laughs> single book we've reviewed no. in the TLS. There's a certain very well-known historian who's written about a certain very famous Prime Minister of... This is Richard Toy's review of... <laughs> oh, uh, no, you can't say. No, what? Absolutely. I'm sure Andrew Roberts is aware of this review. Unfortunately, Professor Toy didn't like the book very much. And unfortunately... I have to interview and what you. You didn't he... write the review, then. No. Andrew Roberts, no. and I'm going to read it with much interest. And he always writes very interesting. And uh, he's got a books. lot of good reviews for it. And he's got lots of tremendous reviews. And what did, what did Churchill what, never fails to. What be did Richard Toy say? It was a thousand. He thought page. it was too long, too uh, enthralled to Churchill, and actually kind of thought that this idea of a man of destiny was sort of, I suppose, unhistorical. He said it was the like idea. a 1950s grammar school prize giving. Yes, I was hoping you weren't going to mention that. <laughs> I believe you said that. Right, we're going to have to move on. But before, any other big gushes or critiques of the year that you've commissioned? We don't do lots of gushing on the fiction pages. No, you don't. Because people write their reviews and they go, this is genius, this is dazzling. And you take it out. I'm, no, I don't take it out. I don't take it out, ever. I write back to them and say, can you please show me an example of genius in the book or example of something dazzling and then they get back to me and they go this is very good and so you do take <laughs> it change. out i don't take well, it out in practice yeah or they stand by dazzling but they do it by showing me rather than telling me yeah. you know and that's usually more effective but we've had lots of really brilliant reviews we reviewed milkman very positively loved milkman loved a book called lucia a novel called lucia by alex phoebe which was published by galley beggar david collard loved that it's about James Joyce's daughter. Oh, he published a stonker last week, though. Did you see the the, the Robert Professor Robert Tomes yes. reviewed the winner of the Prix Goncourt, which is a book called The Order of the Day by oh, Eric Vuillard, yeah. and he didn't like it. He didn't like it in in an incredibly intelligent, stylish, and elegant manner, but he did not <laughs> like it. I like those reviews. <laughs> yeah, that book's been incredibly it's done, popular, it's and I've heard people sing its praises in our very office. Exactly, but but he says, this is not enlightening as history. At best, it tells us what we already know in a somewhat characterful form, nor is it memorable as literature, except perhaps to someone who didn't know anything about the 1930s. But it did win the pre-concours. <laughs> Ouch. That's a good old TLS way, isn't it? Um, Lucy, very quickly, anything for you? Do you want a book or do you want art? Book, do a, a book. book, since do a we're book. talking about books. Well, I can claim no credit for this at all, but we had a very good review by Daisy Hildyard of books by and about Werner Herzog. Yes. It was scenarios that he'd written and also a book by Roger Ebert sort of talking about him. And it said all the things that you might expect about how bonkers he was. There's a beautiful quote which I loved at the time he said, he's talking about the dawn chorus Werner Herzog and he says the birds rejoice with their infernal jubilation <laughs> <laughs> I really so, wish you'd done the voice for that one day I will but not now I'm but not, not now. doing it Stig okay. I'm not doing it right now but I looked hopeful um, that's sort of what you'd expect the sort of bonkers lugubriousness but he also says that when he when he's making his documentaries he's actually very very self-effacing very good listener very patient He's, he's trying to serve what the documentary's talking about and he's not at all imposing himself. So I think we could say a, a true artist. All right, we're going to go uh, to an interview in a moment, but I want everyone in the interim to think of their book recommendations of the year, which they've actually read, Lucy Dallas. I'm constantly reading books, yes. as you know. We'll come to that. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The historian Sergi Ploqui was just 500 kilometers down the Dnieper River when the Chernobyl disaster, still considered the worst nuclear disaster the world has seen, started to unfold in the Ukraine in 1986. The idea of writing a definitive account of events, set against the backdrop of the straining Soviet system more generally, came to Ploqui falteringly over the following decades. He dissuaded and persuaded and dissuaded himself about its necessity and purpose, but thankfully the process did end up producing a book, Chernobyl, The History of a Nuclear Catastrophe, a deeply human story of a drama truly international in scope. Just after the book won the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction, our history editor David Horsepool went along to meet the author. David began by asking about the title. Well, first of all, the word itself, Chernobyl, am I pronouncing that correctly? You're pronouncing it correctly. That's the way how the name became, became known to the world. But the original name of the city or town after which the power plant was called is pronounced Chernobyl in Ukrainian. So it's O instead of E. I write about that in the book and I write how that happened. And the, the nuclear power plant that was built there was under the direct Moscow control and supervision. So it was centrally run and it was the Russian form of the name that eventually... Yes. So right at the beginning, we're, we're seeing there that there's a... There's a tension between the Soviet and the, and the Ukrainian uh, control yes, of the, the whole business. And a history of a tragedy, obviously it was an extraordinarily tragic event in the kind of newspaper sense, but I sense also that to you this was a tragedy in that sense of it being inevitable, that somehow it was almost destined to happen, the accident. Would that be right? That's actually not something that we, we felt at that time. 
At the time of the accident, I lived at that uh, in 1986 in Ukraine, mm. 500 kilometers down the Dnieper River from, from Dnieper. where it happened. So it was really viewed as an accident. And, and But while researching this book, I really found out that was one of the discoveries, at least from my perspective, that the nuclear industry in the Soviet Union as a whole was actually moving in that direction for quite a while. And uh, the level of decentralization, the level of secrecy that was there were contributing factors to the quote-unquote accident, right. which wasn't accident. So it was an accident waiting to happen, really. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Do you apportion blame to individuals or, as I think they did at the time, certain individuals went to jail? Or do you really cast the blame more at the system? Individuals were certainly the important part of, of in terms of explaining what happened. But they were part of the system, and yeah. it's, sometimes it's very difficult to separate one from another. The most uh, terrible thing that could happen from the perspective of the operators of that reactor was that they shut down the reactor prematurely, that they didn't fulfill the yearly or monthly quota, the mm, bonuses would be taken away from them, that mm. they potentially could be fired. But they believed also, and system taught them to believe, that reactors were idiot-proof. At the uh, trial, they were saying, please tell us, show us one instruction, one textbook, where it is said that reactors can explode. And initially, the, the accident, as we'll call it, was the result of an attempt to make the reactor more safe, I think. Exactly. That sounds as if there was some concern that it wasn't safe. They were trying, I think, to cool it down, in effect, and it had the opposite effect. And ended up blowing the top off the reactor. Was there any kind of link with the international nuclear industry? Was there any sense in which people observed what was happening in other countries with the nuclear industry and how they tried to make their industry safe? Or was it very isolated? 1986, we are not exactly in the middle of the Cold War, but we are still in the Cold War. And nuclear was considered to be really a top state secret. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, there was very little in terms of the connection with the, with the outside world. Of course, the spies were there and they were trying to figure out what the British were doing and the Canadians and, and the Americans. But there was really a lot of secrecy around. There were accidents before that. They were kept secret even from the people within the industry, from the operators, from the engineers. And that, that was one of the reasons why Chernobyl happened. I mean, should readers expect a human story, do you think? Would you describe it as that, this, that your account of it? Or is it more of a kind of, uh, what would you call it, a Sovietologist's account of a world historical event or something in between? I pose big questions, but the way how I provide answers to those questions is through human stories. And uh, what I try to do is to put together these different levels of the story from what Gorbachev is doing or thinking about, what, what statements Reagan makes, to the level of people really on the ground who, who uh, either make decisions that then affect what, what the big guys at the, mm -hmm. the top do or become victims of, of those decisions or benefit maybe from those decisions. So that was that was maybe the most interesting part for me to see how how we 
the world altogether and the societies overall are integrated and integrated in these moments of of really jeopardy moments of disaster moments of of, of threat to the uh, to to the existence of all of us and 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 certainly institutions and, and and countries and in terms of the wider consequences for the Soviet Union and Ukraine I think you write that the shockwave of Chernobyl would destroy the foundations of the Soviet Union. So do you really think that the Soviet Union might not have fallen but for Chernobyl? I believe that what happened to the Soviet Union was part of a bigger story of the 20th century, which is called the story of the fall of the empires and the creation of the new states. So so from that point of view, the Soviet Union probably would, one way or another, would fall apart or be transformed. But Chernobyl it served as a trigger for that process. I, I am um, uh, cautious enough not to say if there would be no Chernobyl, we would still have the, the, the Soviet Union around. But the story of the fall of the Soviet Union is incomplete and not understood adequately without taking Chernobyl disaster into account. And finally, do you think we can still learn from the example of Chernobyl? Obviously, nuclear power still exists around the world. We hope in a much safer context, but there are still nuclear accidents. Do you think that Chernobyl still holds lessons for us today? I believe it it does. Are you absolutely right? We are in a safer place today than we were back in 1986, partially because of Chernobyl. But Chernobyl happened not because of the design of the reactor was flawed and we don't use those reactors anymore. So it wasn't just a technological disaster. That was a disaster that was caused by a particular political system, the, the lack of safety culture, the I can do it attitude no matter what. And uh, these things are still with us today, uh, in particular in the countries which are considered to be the next, the next frontier of the development of nuclear energy, and those countries are in the Middle East. Yeah. So the most, ambitious, the most ambitious program of building nuclear reactors are in the Middle East, which happen to be almost exclusively authoritarian regimes, which are new to the nuclear industry because the Chernobyl happened on the watch of the first generation engineers in nuclear industry. Quite few of them didn't have training in the in the nuclear. Another thing, it's a close connection between the military uses of nuclear and civilian uses. And my understanding, at least, is that quite a few of these Middle Eastern countries, they're trying to go nuclear because not because they lack energy. They're in the oil and gas rich region. But because this is a backdoor to the acquiring nuclear weapons, acquiring expertise of, of, of how to, to deal with the reactors, including the, the plutonium uh, breeding reactors that then can help to build the bomb. And, of course, secrecy is, is absolutely the enemy of safety there. Yes, um, yes. But secrecy is what, what they require to, to get on with that. Well, um, thank you very much. I hope that um, people who read your book, you know, will will open out that story very much and spread some sensible thinking about it. But thank you very much oh, indeed. Uh, thank you. And and still, I am an optimist, and I think that we can learn lessons from Chernobyl, and we we are in a safer place, and we can be in an even safer place than we are today. Well, it's good to leave it on a positive note. Thank you, Siri.
Okay, so we're going to talk about our recommendations. Just people should know that off-air Thea had to pause to think whether to stick two fingers or one finger up towards me. Did you pick one in the end? I didn't see. I could do both now. Okay. I've got both hands free. Okay. So we're going <laughs> to keep matters erudite as we refer to our recommendations of the year. Who wants to go first? Don't all look away. It's <laughs> like being in school. <laughs> you don't want to hear from me again. So, um, so is Thea. Ros. Okay. <laughs> Um, recommendations please so I'm going to recommend two novels both of which I have read well done you um, looked at Lucy when you said that <laughs> <laughs> this is like workplace bullying this is, sorry it's all on the record and it's though. on the record <laughs> yeah. yeah oh god the first is called Murmur and it's by Will Eaves yes and we have to say first of all that that we all know Will and and um, he used to work at the used to work here. he was the arts editor wasn't he yeah Ian Sampson put it pretty well in his books of the year he says it's a novel so good and so strange it makes one want to shout yeah. and I agree it's absolutely it's a novel that's really easy to quote from yeah really easy to fall for and incredibly difficult to describe it's about Turing isn't it it's about Alan Turing it's kind of an alternative version of his life it's about consciousness it's about artificial intelligence but it's also not a novel that's really about anything. The experience of reading this novel is poetic and transformative and really leaves you changed. And we were, and we extracted a bit, and you could get that from the bit we extracted, I, yeah. I felt. Was, yeah. a, was there a swim involved from memory? That's right. The bit that we extracted was when Alan, who in the book is a character called Alec, goes on a nighttime swim with another boy from his school. And it's difficult, but it's d- difficult in the best sense because it kind of looks at the world as something very unknowable and engages with that and engages with the difficulty of that. It's very poetic and very... I mean, I could quote you bits. Should I quote you bits? Why not? Give us a little... Do you want to have a little quote? Here we go. why not? It isn't knowing what another person thinks or feels that makes us who we are. It's the respect for not knowing. We are consoled by someone's efforts to conceive us and that's effort's shortfall. I didn't do that very well, but... It's full of beautiful quotes. So that's my first um, David Hall, edited as by the, CB, CB Editions. As the referee of Books of the Year, does that count as log rolling because uh, of Ros's I can tell you that uh, another contributor to the Books of the Year discounted himself from recommending Will's book, although he said it was absolutely tremendous and he loved it because he's friend of Will's and so he he felt he wasn't able to recommend it but so Will's uh, but would have been recommended more times if I'd been well I wasn't particularly harsh I might have if I hadn't realized that because I I didn't realize they were friends but anyway yes I think it probably is log rolling but (laughs) in a good cause it's a very good book indeed have you read it yes I have and I've heard I'm sure a few of us have heard Will read from it which he does extremely well Lucy have you read it I was wondering if we would be allowed to say it, actually. I'm very well, glad that you've you know. said Why not yeah, say yeah, I mean, yeah. like, we're, 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 I think we've, we've caveated it. So yeah, and I don't think yeah, exactly. your judgment yeah, yeah. would be so, you know, hugely clouded by Yeah, you, if, if, you just wouldn't no, mention no. it. Exactly, and, and, it's, yeah. um, and it's been, you know, nominated for the, it was nominated for the Goldsmiths oh, Prize. Yeah. And yeah. I've pressed on so many people who don't know well, and yeah. all of those people have come back to me and gone... Thank you. Mm. That's amazing. It really and is. If Ross yeah. had recommended my book, that would have been log rolling. I recommended yeah. your book, you I believe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, also, David's right because Will, when he reads it, he performs it brilliantly. So um, could it have done better? Do you think? Do you think it could have been bookery? I don't. I don't know why it wasn't on the booker list. No. No, no earthly reason why not. No. No one really knows, do they? No, I don't. It's even worse. So. It's not as bad as the Nobel Prize. <laughs> list. I mean, as, what as we, is? No, as it's we, not as, <laughs> not as, 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 as we learned this year in the TLS. Yeah. yeah, no, certainly not. Who knew that was what went on? I didn't. 
Anyway, carry on, Ross. Next one. And my other one is another novel. This one's called Ghost Wall by someone I don't know and have never met. Well done. Ooh. Yeah. He's an author called Sarah Moss. Yes. And uh, we extracted this as well. You know, strangely, I chose the extracts and I really like them. Which I'm but... pleased about. Otherwise, it'd be, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd be a disappointing experience for the reader, I feel. Both novels I'm recommending are not long. This is another quite small one called Ghost Wall. It's about a young girl called Sylvie. Her father's a bus driver, amateur historian, into Iron Age settlements and Iron Age reenactments. Okay. Into the strange sacrificial things that we used to do to people and their corpses that are found in bogs, basically. And they go to an Iron Age settlement, and it's kind of a book about abuse and how it's presented as love, which sounds very heavy and very awful, but it's not presented, as our reviewer brilliantly put it, it's not presented in this didactic way. You're very much in Sylvie's experience and you sort of just perceive this imbalance this situation and it's it's wonderful really an amazing achievement lovely stuff okay Lucy this might be a bit obvious not least because I read it for the paper it's not (laughs) (laughs) wonderful book how Britain really no but I have read a few books this year you might not believe me but I have but the one that is mentioned here and that uh, that still does stick out for me is Circe by Madeline Miller ah yes and I was thinking about why partly because she's just very good I mean you just want to read it it's a tough gig that because I don't particularly want to reread effortful literary re it's not effortful at all though the classics because it's such an I find that such an easy it just seems to me such an easy target for a writer to hit you know take a story mm. someone's already done it and it has of, been done yeah and, and lots of people do it generation after generation so to get yep. to this level with it seems to me to be a pretty good achievement well first of all she's had the good idea of taking someone interesting that nobody else has paid any attention to and unpicking the whole kind of lineage behind about the ideas about being a witch and you know yeah. all of that kind of thing and the voice is very, very good. You've got to be careful with that because you don't want to sound like a kind of very stilted, godly, kind of low behold kind yeah. of thing. But equally, if she's constantly going, oh, that's Peng, then yeah. that wouldn't be very believable either. Luckily, she so, does neither, <laughs> neither of those things. Somewhere between um, the two. Yeah. Uh, and also it made me think about that whole set of things, a whole set of myths and the way we perceive them and the way they're handed down. It just makes you think about it differently. It kind of takes a subject and kind of turns it by however many degrees you want. Yeah. And that, I think, is a, that's a real thing because it's all very well to read a book about a thing and then go, oh, that was interesting. But if it makes you go, oh, what about all of that? Has anybody else done it well, refashioning? Didn't... Didn't Pat Barker, Pat Barker, Pat Barker did took, took that as her start this year for her yeah. novel? Oh, yeah. The, the Silence um, of the Girls. Pen- the Penelope ad by Margaret, Margaret Atwood. 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 I and there's remember. something that just came, came out of reviews coming quite soon. It's uh, called The Mare Wife. It's a novel and it's a female retelling of Beowulf, which looks mm. really interesting. I thought mm. Colin Toy Beans, but is it House of Names? Also, that's the sort of Oristaya yeah, yeah. we were told. Mm, mm. Yeah. I thought that was very good. It's really horrible, though. It's yeah. not a fun story. That's the other no, thing. Oh, almost famously, almost famously so. Yes. Whereas Cersei's not too bad. Just from as that horrible point of view. when he does it, as when you know Aeschylus does it. Yeah. Mm, no, it's not. Uh, that that's not fun. But it, but uh, yeah, I just thought it was really interesting. And I've read a couple of others recently. Am I allowed to say? Go them? on. Uh, one by Matthias Enau. Which was actually it, it wouldn't was, be a TLS books of the year unless people were mentioning Ana. I know, actually, people love him. I haven't Compass read any of his own. others. Compass. No, it's no. not. It's not. It's none of them. It's one that he did in French ages ago, and it's just come out in English called "Tell Them of Battles, Kings, and Elephants." It's really good. Great name. Yeah, yeah it's really good. It's very short. 
That's a big Perfect. tick. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, and I, I haven't read any of his other books, his whole project is about the East talking to the West, and, yeah. and, and that's kind of what this is. It's a little bit He's counterfactual. Is it interesting structurally? Because Zone, for example, was is famously written all in one sentence. And no, it's quite straightforward, actually. And Have you read Zone? Yes. Does of. anyone actually, if they're honest with themselves, want to read a novel that's only one sentence? I asked the question I mean, with, with due deference you end to up, the you end. You read it without it, knowing. Exactly. To you, the end of you, Ulysses. You but end up punctuating it yourself, inevitably. Yeah. And you think, why didn't he? I... I <laughs> But you do, don't you? Well, <laughs> all right, Dad. I'm with, I'm, with, I'm, I'm, I'm with David on that. Is that not true? Couldn't he just well, go through and yeah. put the full stops? No. In? Yes. I'm asking the question. You remember Will Silver at those you know, Umbrella, that great sort of modernist novel? I was trying to imagine being the editor of that because it's this sort of sweeping, you know, whole pages of sentences, modernist style sentences. How do you edit that? I mean, how do you know that that repetition of four words? Is deliberate or not deliberate? You just have you to. You just have to ask him each time. Does he mean this? Or don't edit it. <laughs> or don't edit it. Yeah. But you'd have you'd have to edit it. I'm just interested. But when you read the the whole sentence novel, did you admire the conceit? Or did yes, you think... because I think you do. I mean, bearing in mind that I read it a while ago, you do, you punctuate it yourself, so you don't feel it as all one sentence because it. It breaks up in in its own way. I remember writing you, you about. You can stop and you know drink and <laughs> eat is, and leave yeah. the house, and it's perfectly fine. I remember once writing about experimental fiction that it was more fun to write than to read. Well, I think that's that's a, a real consideration. It, yeah, you often have to think about what fun it must be for editors and people who make books, thinking about clever ways to do things, but then actually whether they work as reading experiences but you're saying it did so I'm not I mean otherwise I'm not saying it as an argument against experimentation talking about editing it you won't necessarily know for perhaps many many years to come and people will talk about it for decades if you think about D.H. Lawrence for example people are still or have only recently sort of decided that maybe when he was repeating words that was intentional Hmm. that was part of what he was doing is there a writer in the canon more eligible for damaging quotation than D.H. Lawrence if you just Flick through any D.H. Lawrence and just grab a Andre Asiman. Really? <laughs> That's what you'd say, yeah. <laughs> the canonical. Is he canonical? I mean, to, to pick out a sentence and make it sound... Maybe just really, I cannot believe that's been published. It's ridiculous. Mm. I mean, Lawrence sex writing generally, I think, is, is laughable. But Norman Mailer is probably similar in that mm. if you... You know, Norman Mailer in full pomp is very, very uh, vulnerable to a damaging quotation. And he's quite Laurentian in, in, in some ways. But. And I say Asiman only because I'm, I'm only thinking of the Enigma variations, which if we're going to skip ahead a little bit, that would be my, my choice for book. I don't know if it's necessarily an unbook because it's, what... it's definitely a book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a book that I, I, I didn't get. And a few people said, oh, this is really good. This is really very good. And I just found it to be so overwritten and very vulnerable to pulling out. I think, I think in fact, yeah, I quoted some bits to you, Ros, yeah. didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry about that. No, right. <laughs> uh, well, let's press on. Give me a recommendation before you go to rubbishing someone. To anything you've read? Well, I realise now as I see my choices laid out before me that they all sort of come back to either conversations or interviews. So, okay. so kind of a theme that runs through them. But um, I choose Nell Dunn, Talking to Women, which yeah. I think has been chosen by one of our contributors, 
So that was published in 1964. The interviews were conducted in 64. I think it came out in 65. Uh, and it was Nell Don who is... She was born into a very affluent uh, family in West London and she famously ran away to, to Battersea and took a job in a factory. And it's a collection of interviews, I think about eight or nine women among them, uh, writers, Anne Quinn, Edna O'Brien. We reviewed this, didn't we? Yes, mm, Pauline yeah. Boaty, the artist. Uh, and she just asked some very simple questions. Do you think marriage is important? What is desire? Do you want children? What does that mean? How do you work? All the very, very simple questions. But the thing about Nell Dunn is that she has this way of interviewing people where she, it's almost as though she, she knows what her interviewee wants to say, wants to be able to say, and she creates the circumstances, she creates the place for that to be able to happen. And so you end up with this tapestry, you know, it's quite a, it's quite a tight selection in that it, it's, it's mostly kind of, you know, bohemian types talking about these things, uh, all, all white women for a start, and one factory worker who, who was a colleague of hers. But you do end up with this, this tapestry of voices which from the 1960s, which is very interesting, you know, it's, it's a pill had only just been introduced and yeah. I think it was still only available to married women at the time and a few years later became more widely accessible. So it was a very interesting 1960s document and in fact Ros, I think you would have chosen mine I was expecting you to mention my next choice Sally Rooney. Do you know what oh, I was going God, to yeah. but I've gone on about it <laughs> I've gone about it so God, much you've gone on about it. that I thought I just couldn't do it my wife, I bought it for my wife she absolutely which one? Normal people. The new one, normal people. She yeah. just loved it. She yeah. just thought yes. it was magnificent. Of course she did. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's really quite. It's really quite I good. Want to read that one too. I thought the first. I thought the first one was very. It was fine. Yeah, the, the first oh, one. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I agree. The first one was fine, and I, then I think normal people. I still have caveats about normal people. I, Do you mean I'm actual not... people or the book? <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. I um, She's got a stand-up mic. You see, here's one. <laughs> But I did find it very interesting. I'd can't, I I read them, Michael Hoffman uh, recommends both of those Sally Rooney novels and he said he read them over two nights. I didn't quite manage it over two nights, but I know what he meant. They were, they're, they're very well paced, mm. uh, very engrossing. The first one, yes, didn't quite do it for me. Normal People, I think, was a significant improvement. It was significantly more accomplished. I'm interested to see where she goes next. And I did find that reading her sent me back to Anne Enright, who is a, a writer who very many people compare her to. Yeah. And then finally, David, finally, Barracoon by Zora Neale Hurston, which was reviewed for us by Colin Grant. He yeah. wrote a great review of it, he and did. it was off the back of that that I then went and read it for myself. I only really knew about Zora Neale Hurston as a novelist. It's an interview between uh, Zora Neale Hurston in, in the 1920s and Kosola Ololuai, who was the, the last member of the Takoi tribe and the last human to be trafficked for slavery in the 1860s. And it's just, it's it's, it's a astounding work of anthropology. Very interesting, full of dialect and full of strange little ethical things to think about. And it's a lovely review by Colin Grant as well, yeah. I remember that. David Horsepool, come on, give us a couple of history books. All right, well, we're from one grant to another. I have to oh, apologise yes. that this one was in fact published at the end of 2017, but it's a thousand pages long, Ron Chernow's <laughs> biography of Ulysses S. Grant. Which I bought for my dad on your recommendation. Well, I'm sure your dad will love it. Um, the first thing I discovered is the S doesn't stand for anything in the middle of his name, isn't that brilliant? It's yeah. just a clerical error. He, um, There's already a lot of S's in the first name. He's the most amazing, I mean, it's a wonderful biography. It's not a complete hagiography, but he does come across, I mean, because he was a very flawed man. He was an alcoholic uh, Ulysses Grant he battled with drink all his life and he was lampooned for it it wasn't like it was kept a secret from the American public people 
did cartoons and newspaper stories about him all the time, even while he was fighting the Civil War and winning the Civil War for the Union and then becoming president. He would have been in the theatre where Lincoln was assassinated if he and his wife had not decided to stay at home that night. And he struggled from, from nothing, really. I mean, he was really, he was almost homeless before the Civil War started. Uh, he was working in a, in a store when it started. He went back into the army, which he'd been thrown out of as an alcoholic, and rose up through, through well, not quite through the ranks, to become the head of the army and won the Civil War, beating the greatest general of the age, Robert E. Lee, this extraordinary, awful, cataclysmic event in American history. And he tried very, very, very hard to bring the country together again afterwards. He was a, a tremendous kind of advocate for peace, for reconstruction. He was he presided over the first African-American congressmen and um, legislators. And it was, it was only after... Uh, his time that that it all sort of started to fall apart, and you read this through Chern, it's just he's just a wonderful biographer. So that that really did was he write my, the Hamilton biography that he led did, to he did. the musical Hamilton? He did indeed. Yeah. Um, so he's so now he, a trillionaire somewhere. He's he's a pretty great guy, but I mean that was published last year. So I thought I'd, if I am allowed one more, go one more, take a leaf out of the great Mary Beard's book and choose a catalogue. Oh, But it's a catalogue of an exhibition that we can all go and see because it's on at the moment, it's on until February at the British Library. It's the Anglo-Saxon Kingdom's Art, Word and War exhibition, which I went to see and I got the catalogue. And the catalogue's a beautiful thing in itself if you're not able to get to the exhibition. But if you possibly... As most of our listeners won't. I'm afraid those in Labrador Labrador and so on will not be able to get... But it's it's a a wonderful catalogue. It's an extraordinary thing. And there are just amazing, amazing things in in that exhibition, including uh, a book that's come back to England for the first time in 1,300 years, a book that was buried with St Cuthbert in the 8th century and is, is, you know, there it is right before your eyes and various other Anglo-Saxon treasures. And, you know, the idea that this was a dark age is just blown out of the water. You don't like that, do you, the idea of that? I do not. (laughs) That's the subject for another podcast, I feel. A, a series, I would have thought. Sadly, that's all we've got time for. Oh, we didn't do our unbooks. We didn't do any unbooks. Mm. Do you have anything you want to just want to throw in? Anything you? Particular? I just want to take the opportunity to talk about Jordan Peterson for a bit. <laughs> Anna Katerina, it comes from that. Yeah, my book of the year is an unbook of the year as it sums up succinctly many of the things that are wrong about our present moment, says Anna Katerina Schaffner and Savage's Twelve Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson, who, of course, was reviewed by. Kate Mann. Kate Mann. And Savaged. And indeed Savaged. Intelligently, yeah. So if anyone listens to this podcast, don't read Jordan Peterson is what we're saying. Quite right. Do you feel that's right? That's quite right. But read a a catalogue. But do you read a catalogue? Read a catalogue with a thousand pages. Art, word, war. Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. Marvellous. We've got to stop talking. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Roz, David and Lucy. Get subscribing to the TLS. Get tweeting your location wherever you may be in the world. And do come back next week, which we haven't planned at all, have we, dear? No. Any ideas? No. Fine, we'll we'll work something out. We will be there back next week, I promise. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 